0: All right. Hello and welcome to RealCom's second webinar in the series titled Net Zero Carbon Detection, Collection, and Reporting. I'm Chuck Nysmonger, your RealCom host for today's webinar, ESG and Carbon Accounting Case Studies. Today's discussion centers on how companies are implementing these changes, their pilot programs, and the results they're seeing. But before we get started, let me go over a few housekeeping items to help you have a great webinar experience. First of all, thank you to our live audience and we do encourage you to use the Q&A box on the bottom left of your screen to submit questions or comments. I'll take them and pass them on to the panel. It's always better when you're an active participant. We do enjoy your questions and it does create a good dynamic. In the handout section, you'll find more detailed bios of our panelists, the small set of slides from the April 9th webinar, and all of today's slides. And I will caution you, there's a lot of detail in the slides today, so you may want to download that for future reference. If you're watching this as a recording, you can always just pause the video playback and read some of that fine print. It's very good information and you'll you'll benefit greatly from it. For the best webinar experience, we do recommend closing out any other internet applications, especially streaming videos. Just as a helpful tip, tip, if you haven't seen the recording of the first session in this series, I do highly recommend reviewing both of these together on realcom.com's past webinar archive. I think the two of them together will create just a tremendous amount of information for you. If you're experiencing any technical issues with connectivity, sound, or video quality, The best thing to do is disconnect and click on the webinar link. Again, you can also email Ian at ithompson, that's I-T-H-O-M-P-S-O-N, at realcom.com for help during the event. But don't worry, you won't miss anything, since you'll receive a link to the webinar recording later today. And we've included my email on the slide in case you think of a question for our panel, but You're watching this as a recording. And of course, you know, you can't interact with them. So just send the questions to me. I'll forward them along to our panel and we'll try to get them answered if we can. This educational webinar is supported by our outstanding sponsors. Carrier Abound is a suite of connected solutions and cloud based digital platform that enables real time, intelligent outcome based results that make buildings more efficient while providing occupants with the confidence in the health and safety of their indoor environments. Let's play a quick video so you can see more.
1: The building is evolving. Environments will no longer be defined by the features and technologies that go into them, but by what you get out of them. The human benefits of spaces that are optimized for health, safety, and productivity the positive impact of reduced energy consumption in more sustainable, restorative environments. The assurance that safety and security risks are predictable and dynamically managed. The capabilities that come with having disparate data, devices and equipment function cooperatively and communicate effectively within a building and across multiple buildings. And the possibilities born out of living ecosystems that learn over time, self-heal, adjust their own settings, and personalize experiences. This is the Future of Buildings. Starts with a balance.
0: All right, that's pretty impressive. So you might want to check those out. I'll put a link in the uh, chat feature for all of the live attendees, and you can definitely go see more about that. Let's talk about our other great sponsor, Yardi provides innovative industry-leading real estate investment and asset solutions for organizations of all sizes and asset classes globally. They're a connected platform that optimizes efficiencies, collaboration, and transparency from investor to lease to ESG. Let's watch a video and learn a little more. All right and we're so grateful really for the contributions by these technology partners to our industry to realcom and to helping us educate our viewers in sessions just like these if you're ready to start your esg net zero carbon management journey or you need help with it and you want to drive business outcomes with smarter building technology just be sure to include these trusted partners in your vendor evaluation process and just a quick comment about our RealCom webinars. Our goal here is to discuss, debate, explore the landscape of innovative solutions, business challenges, even uncertainty in a manner that's relatable and easy to understand and to provide our end user community, you, our RealCom followers, with relevant information that can be integrated into your own business objectives. Our moderator for today's webinar is Sarah Neff. She's head of ESG at Lindlease Americas. Welcome Sarah.
2: Uh, thank you so much for having me. Hi everybody.
0: I'm glad you're here. That's great. Sarah, one thing I would like to do, it worked out very well last time, if we could just run a quick poll, two polls. One uh, helps us get a quick uh, understanding of who we have in the uh, live audience. I think we're we're, we're hitting about 60 plus live members so if you don't mind the live audience take a chance and see if you can identify with one of those positions in the company Sarah I think that it does help us sometimes we've actually adjusted the discussion points because we had a, a large concentration especially in the ESG area can't wait so that's good all right let's try the second one and uh, uh, second one gives an idea of where you're at. And where your company's at in your carbon accounting and reporting maturity. So, uh, get it may not be perfect. If you can just decide which one is is pretty close for you, that can be real helpful. And then again, it gives us an idea of how we can adjust the conversation. So, so that's good. Plus, I think Sarah, you know, you're going to cover some of these. So, if people evaluating things and and you know problems people have had along the way with some of the just you know starting off with excel or not even sure what it all means yet. <laughs> absolutely so that's good all right so just let's take a quick look and see how the polls turned out all right so a good mix uh a lot of vendor consultants so that's i think one of the highest we've seen so far but a pretty good group on the esg side what do you think sarah
2: yeah no it, this is a great mix i'm looking forward to it
0: all right, and maturity level. Let's see how that turned out. So everybody's somewhere. Everybody's somewhere. And the uh, interesting that the highest one, we might have to double check on that. We're gonna have to. We're gonna have to check to see if really almost 40% are collecting all carbon emissions. That's really impressive. So all right, Sarah, very good. Thank you so much again for moderating. I'm gonna get out of the way. You'll see me at the end. And uh, I wish you well and have a great webinar.
2: Thank you so much, Chuck. And thank you so much to RealCom for having me. So hi everybody, I'm Sarah Neff. I am the head of sustainability for Lendlease America. And uh, I'm gonna just do a little bit of table setting and then I can't wait to get into our panelists, which is what you guys are actually here for. So um, basically, uh, companies are under enormous pressure to understand and reduce their carbon emissions. I'm at Lendlease, um, after doing a whole lot of what we call climate scenario planning, we decided we wanted to be a 1.5 degree aligned company, that means that we want our emissions to um, not contribute to a world that uh, warms by more than 1.5 degrees. Um, And that's fairly radical, so we have to set some really, really uh, aggressive carbon uh, targets. So so we've... um, Uh, Declared the ambition to be uh, scope one and scope two neutral by 2025, and uh, even more audaciously to be um, absolute zero. So, not net, no offsets allowed for scopes one, two, and three. That means all of the emissions for everything from our lights to our flights to our concrete. Uh, by 2040. Um, That is a whole lot, and it's gonna take a whole lot um, to get us there. So we're working a lot to decarbonize our supply chain. We're working a lot with all of our partners, um, with our own employees. And I just wanted to, before I um, get into our fantastic panel, just wanted to give a little taste of how we're doing that um, at Lendlease. So what we did here, if I can advance my slide, let's hope this works. Yes. we uh, partnered to create something called Podium Property Insights. So this is something we helped create. I mean, this gives us deep, deep insight into, um, we started with our own offices. Um, And I know some of the folks who helped create Podium are on the line. So Podium does many, many, many things. Um, But what I want to focus on for me, selfishly, um, is the sustainability piece of it. Um, So one of the things that um, Podium helps us do is understand our own building operations. and We can actually dive into the zone level in our own offices um, to actually see how much energy is being used. And we use that information to feed back um, into building automation systems to optimize that making sure that we're delivering the right amount of HVAC, but not too much um, to to optimize this in our own offices. This has actually been so exciting that we now um, have clients. So Accenture, for example, is uh, rolling this out uh, um, through 800, I believe, of their properties. So we're really, really seeing the scale. Um, What we're really understanding is that people need granular data. Um, to understand uh, operational carbon emissions. And this is one of the fantastic tools that we have to do that. So I'm so excited about Podium and what it allows us to do um, from an operational carbon emissions uh, perspective. So that's just a taste of what Lendlease is doing. As you can tell, it takes a lot. It takes a lot of insight. It takes a lot of data. It takes a lot of analysis of data. Um, and that's a whole lot of work. Um, and so I'm so excited to bring up our next, our first panelist, um, who is a Sam Addison from Collier's. Um, Sam is having some uh, connectivity issues. She's beaming in from London, um, so she's not going to be on camera. So just a little bit about Sam. Uh, Sam is an experienced real estate and construction professional who has worked for over 20 years, providing advice across the life cycle of commercial properties for a number of large multinational corporate clients. She has a technical background coupled with management expertise. So, um, Sam, thanks so much for being here. I know it's a different time zone for you, um, and I, we are looking forward to your uh, presentation.
3: Yeah, thanks, Sarah, and thanks for having me today. So, what I'm planning to do today is to present a structured approach to decarbonizing corporate real estate uh, okay. portfolios by enabling best possible decisions in a pragmatic way. Um, And you might notice on some of the slides that there's actually three organizations listed. We know that to tackle climate change is imperative that we collaborate. And what I'm gonna show you today, we're gonna talk through some challenges and then uh, look at a database where we've collaborated with a leading engineering consultancy, Kundal, and also one of our clients, Electrolux, a consumer goods manufacturer. So, to start with, some of the key challenges that we're facing um, in decarbonising real estate. First, first of all, in terms of the targets that we've been set, we're not doing very well in terms of um, where we are. Recently, the, the IPCC report that came out this week, I'm going to skip through this, but we know that we have a long way to go, um, which suggests it's a difficult um, process. Secondly, and this now we're starting to hone in on more specific challenges within real estate, I call it the, the fog of certification. There's a whole array of certificates out there. Um, And as we know, it's not entirely clear if we're focusing on decarbonising and um, net zero carbon, um, these don't actually get us to that point. And I think that's illustrated in my next slide, where um, we look at uh, probably we're looking in Europe at sort of um, the leading edge certificates of, say, Neighbours Six Star, where we have to have an annual review of the certificate from the design and construction phase. That's still not getting you to net zero carbon so again we've got this challenge so when i'm working with corporate occupiers of real estate and that's across different asset classes it's a key challenge because um it's not that simple to to rely upon certificates alone another key challenge um in terms of the focus on operational um energy and you know looking at uh here, we've got two types of building. I'm not gonna go into where they are, but the type we've got on the top there, um, a new development, um, instead of things, smart building, and below uh, a 1960s concrete clad, concrete framed uh, building. So I think one of the key challenges we've got is also that um, we need to start focusing on body carbon. And just to illustrate that, I'll quickly go through this. So in terms of operational energy, yes, the new building's gonna have a lower impact. Then we start to, um, you know, think about the um, the embodied carbon as well. I'm just gonna go back to that slide a second. Ah. I've skipped through all of the slides there. I'm just gonna try and go backwards. I wonder, Ian, could you just give us a hand and uh, take me back? So I've just skipped through there. But the, the challenges around um, embodied carbon are that actually when we're looking at the, um, the the fit out, and if we can go back again, sorry, a couple of slides. Yeah, that's it perfect so the, the focus on operational energy um means that we're not focusing on legacy and um when we carry on in, in the slide that you'll see that actually there's um uh, there is more information around the legacy carbon that actually a new building with um, highly technical solutions if you're not taking into account legacy carbon means that we do not have the full picture and again we understand that that may be because um as we're focusing on operational energy has got better and um, so therefore the focus on embodied carbon is important and it does play into our scopes so we want to make sure that in a pragmatic way that we are taking into account legacy carbon as well we've also then just got the the challenges of um, you know the complexity of real estate so again i'm representing occupy clients in corporate real estate many countries um, diverse portfolios uh, different types of tenure um, landlords are not ready. Often, um, there's also that, that sort of need for fast decisions, limited budgets. Again, so often when there's a an investment decision being made, uh, we need to move quickly and with limited um, data. So we've focused as a as a collaboration, looking at um, business orientated tool, a database of um, to support decision making, looking at portfolios and at new sites, realistic, transparent, but also backed with science iso compatible and to enable fast decision making at a reasonable cost so together we've um we've collaborated as a group bringing in the expertise of sustainability um, corporate real estate services and an end user so we've got the client perspective as well in terms of objectives making sure that any decision has uh, any real estate investment decision has got a sustainability lens I'm going to click through to um, how we're sort of moving this as well. Is also bearing in mind that um, we want to have a pragmatic uh, view. We want to be making sure that we're um, not just going for the, the new builds, we're make, taking into account that embodied carbon that we spoke about. But also, in terms of the tool, we're, we're sort of evolving. We're using a minimal viable product at the moment, which is a database. And for instance, um, at the moment, the embodied carbon um, function is limited, and we're looking at collecting data to help us create. Um, figures based on key data such as location structure of frame Um, but we're sort of moving forward but again it's this feeling that we want to make sure that we we have got support to decision making at the moment and this is going to evolve this database is going to evolve as we go forward in terms of what we're doing you can see there at the bottom we're collecting data um, from a number of sources from HR from uh, data that's publicly available we do that for instance um, we just recently looked at a portfolio of um, assets for a client and actually where um, they didn't have energy consumption data available. We used benchmarking data. And, and that did two things. It meant that we we still had a, um, we could still look at that portfolio and, and view it. But it also flagged that that data was estimated. It meant then there's a discussion with the landlord um, to say that we need that access to the, um, you know, the submetering. So again, it's, we've got to accept that we're not always going to get the data we want, but we need to have then something in exchange and also to flag um, that we need other information. Um, and then we're also um, getting information from um, the landlords um, and from our property teams as well it enables decisions you can see there at the top around decisions on um, buying or renting um, as part of the due diligence typically and also as a portfolio view as well this is a um, a view from one of our um, beta versions and this was looking at uh, a selection uh, a shortlisted selection of assets that our client was considering and it gives the um, view in terms of um, energy intensity we're using benchmarks that actually show a path towards net zero so again it enables that quick pragmatic discussion and to support the decision making um, in real time with what the data that is available and and crucially I think it also makes sure that dialogue is happening with the landlords and with the market so they know that occupiers do you know are demanding this data so just a really quick run through of of the um, of the tool that we've created we're looking for more collaborators we're looking for more data uh, and thank you for your attention today
2: Sam, thank you so much. That was a lot that you covered very, very quickly, and I really, really appreciate that. That was fantastic. Um, so, uh, by the way, I just love this idea of like moving away from certifications to real um, data. Can I um, can I ask you sort of what you learned in that process? So, you know, we, we live in the world of certification soup. I think the building that I'm working in has three right now. I think it's LEED and ENERGY STAR and FITWELL, all of which are fantastic. Um, But uh, you know, yet I, as a tenant in this building, don't actually know what its um, energy consumption is. So, Sam, um, can you just talk like, what have you learned um, going from just certifications to actually real data insights?
3: I think it's important that we um, we do look at the the real data that's going to enable us to get to a net zero future, and I think. know that uh, certificates have definitely got a place and you know i've worked in construction long enough that um when we use lead or brian for instance it gives you so much other you know so many benefits in terms of structured governance collection of data but i think what we're seeing with uh with frameworks such as say the neighbors framework what's crucially different about that and also um with data around energy consumption is the in use part i think that's Mm -hmm. you know the the certificates that are you know it's like getting a fridge with an epc certificate it you know it can't just be about where it's designed and constructed because we need to know how it's being used in operation and that data is so critical and then I think also in body carbon that's becoming increasingly important in terms of the decisions we are starting to see now clients actually bring this into the um, into the decisions around which real estate option or investment they're going to make and they will actually look at the legacy carbon um, and so we're seeing that across Europe you know playing out in for instance planning frameworks as well so I think it's it's having you know it's, a, it's different lenses looking at energy consumption and use and that legacy carbon
2: I love that. So if, if I'm hearing you, right, like certificates, even an operational certificate is really a snapshot in time. Yeah, you know, you're getting you're getting a sort of a it's like a getting in for your yearly, you know, physical check in with your doctor. It's not giving you the real time, the real time exactly. that really helps you optimize on the day to day basis. I love that. Um, and then um, one of the things I also really liked about your presentation was this concept of of having. Um, the data when you need it um, to make these critical decisions. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that? Like, when do you need data to make critical decisions in design operations, and like, what data are you are you needing? Like, what when has data about sustainability influenced a design decision, either embodied carbon or something else, or an operational decision?
3: Yeah. Well, I think. Uh, I think maybe on the on the real estate investment decisions, the data. Um, I think what's important is if there's if certain data is not available. Say for instance, um, embodied carbon is not available. What we're doing is looking at other data points that will support that that decision. Um, so for instance, you know, location, age of construction, construction of the frame. We can start to advise clients. So that's on the investment side. I think in terms of. This sort of design decisions, we are increasingly seeing um, embodied carbon being added to change requests. I mean, it's, it's a simple sort of concept. Um, now it's, it's easier in new build developments because it's also trying to get that data. But I think we are starting to see a trend towards that where embodied carbon data is being utilized. So, you know, classic sort of change request process for a new build, um, as well as looking at, you know, time, cost, health and safety impact. We're looking at embodied impact as well, but it's about having that data at that time. Yeah. If you don't have the data you can't
2: optimize on the embodied carbon absolutely we we go through that a lot and we swear you know the the lca the life cycle assessment um, of the building often happens halfway through construction or after construction and you're not actually using that to influence any of the decisions about the embodied carbon It's really just becomes a reporting tool so i love that so data early is what's needed for decisions beautiful data too
3: late doesn't actually get you anywhere if i'm understanding you right exactly and also to have to have some maybe like deal breakers if there's certain things sort of maybe quite blunt sort of data inputs and it may just be around um renewable energy but we've got clients also if there's not renewable energy available in the building it's just straight off the list
2: yeah absolutely um they uh one of the things that we're actually putting into our due diligence process is like, can we get the data? You know, is the metering set up so that we can get the data before we come in, or are we gonna, and we're putting in metering into our pro formas um, so that, you know, we are able to get it from day one because we just can't wait around uh, to figure out the solution. We have to we have to have it as soon as we operationalize the building. So Sam, we'll come back to you in Q&A. Thank you so much uh, right, for being thank you. here. Um, and I'm gonna uh, introduce my good friend, uh, Becca, Rush, uh, Becca Um so Becca is the director of ESG at Jamestown. Uh, she leads in environmental, social, and governance initiative um, through the Jamestown Green Program and the Jamestown Charitable Foundation. So uh, Becca, it is such a pleasure to be um, presenting with you again and take it away.
4: Awesome, I love these panels and I love when I'm taking ferocious notes. Um, so many of the themes um, that you hit on Sarah and Sam as well, you know, collaboration, pushing the envelope with absolute zero, um, I think this is exciting stuff and it's really important that we continue to share, um, so thanks RealCom for for hosting. Um, a little bit about Jamestown, for those of you that don't know us, let me get hip to these slides real quick, give me one moment, ah, there we go. We are a design-focused uh, real estate investment and management firm. We had about $13.2 billion in assets under management towards the, at the end of last year. Um, And our mission is really to transform spaces into innovation hubs and community centers. Uh, I've been at Jamestown a little over 10 years, um, and I'm lucky because I feel like the way that um, we do this, we take a very hands-on approach to value creation, uh, which is really synergistic uh, with our ESG goals and and allows us to fully integrate ESG into our overall uh, vertical operation. This map just shows a little bit in terms of where we operate. Um, So we're a global company, and this is relevant uh, when it comes to legislative drivers, building codes, uh, utility incentives, um, or even the availability of things like uh, renewable energy that we can purchase from the grid. We've been at this um, for a while. Um, So the program and initiative was really started back in 2008. Um, I was Jamestown's first full-time sustainability hire. Um, So it's been really interesting to, to see the topic evolve over the years. Um we do a good bit of reporting as you can see up top and and everyone does love the the awards and the recognition I you know I'm not sure we'll ever get away from the certifications um but I wanted to point out below just the the metrics and kind of the level of detail that we we need in order to be transparent about our ESG performance um you know certainly on an annual basis um, but as we've just discussed a little bit um i think performance is increasingly getting you know a little more real time right like how are you performing uh not just last year but last quarter or this past month or today um and i think that data is really necessary in order to connect the dots between what we do to check the box but then what do we do to really move the needle with our operations Um so all of this information Uh, Is published in our uh, annual sustainability report, which is on the Jamestown website. Um, So, I'm going to move fast through the next couple of slides, um, but invite you to check that out um, if you're interested in more information. Um, This is just about uh, kind of where we're headed and how we're organized. Um, So, we approach ESG through nine different impact areas at Jamestown, um, and we've aligned uh, the 79 targets that fall under those impact areas to support all 17 UN Sustainable Development Goals. Um, we felt that as a global company it was important to kind of set that alignment um, and show just the the impact that real estate companies can have Um, i know we're talking about emissions and jamestown has a net zero operational carbon goal by 2050. Um, we're really proud of that Uh, but as sarah pointed out you know net involves a lot of other things Um, and i think the market is probably headed to a more absolute uh, target in the future um, the thing that I love about these targets is they're, that they're really intended to be iterative. So, we have short, medium, and long-term targets, um, and we have fewer long-term targets than short-term targets because it's hard for me to say, you know, where we should be in 2050 today. Um, so, I expect that in the next couple of years, we'll be reevaluating our targets as well. Um, so, I'm going to talk about some of the energy efficiency practices that we we use to, to drive improvements. Um, I'll note that on the data side, you know, I've been hearing and saying for a decade, um, you can't manage what you don't measure. And so we use a collection of tools, um, everything from uh, Schneider Electric for our utility bill automation and bill pay, um, Energy Star Portfolio Manager, Measurable, that's how we get all of the um, kind of benchmarking data for our assets um, so that we can track our progress towards goals on an annual basis. and you know one of the things that i talk about a lot is um, we have a very diverse portfolio and so our approach to energy efficiency and decarbonization is going to be necessarily different um, depending on the market Um, so for example you know we also have a lot of very old buildings right so when you're dealing with a hundred year old building versus a brand new um, glass office tower uh, your approach to efficiency is going to be different as are the opportunities available um, in New York, we have a lot of old buildings. We're doing things like um, big infrastructure upgrades, uh, boiler replacements, um, exterior kind of space heating upgrades. Uh, we've been using Aquacore for a number of years to do real-time energy management, um, giving the building engineers information that they need to control their buildings. Um, and this was uh, really valuable during COVID so that we could um, essentially understand the, the, the impact that a lower occupancy was having on our um, Building performance. Uh, another New York building, we've uh, it's a multifamily asset. We've done some really interesting stuff with energy management, um, and in addition to some base building savings, we've also been able to implement demand response. Um, so the individual residents in the apartments, right, that we don't really control, um, they are then incentivized and can actually earn, you know, a couple hundred bucks a year. Um, by curtailing their energy usage um, when the grid is under stress. Um, So we think that's really cool and we'd love to see that expand to other markets. Um, In markets like San Francisco, there's a lot of free resources available. Um, We love the uh, PG&E retro-commissioning program um, and have also recently been using their uh, custom incentive program to help sweeten the deal and make some of these projects pencil. Um, And we uh, have struggled a little bit with solar, quite frankly. we had a, a, a solar project in Boston. Um, we actually had to remove some of those panels uh, to accommodate rooftop infrastructure. Um, and so right now we're targeting more solar projects in California. Um, but this is really just to illustrate that there's not for many portfolios, you know, a one size uh, fits all approach. Um, one of the really cool things that we did, um, and I think this has been alluded to, you know, we feel like the future and decarbonization really must be tech enabled. Uh, we recently combined our tech and innovation team with our ESG team. So we are now kind of a broader innovation and sustainability group. Um, and we use data. Uh, we're very data driven. We have a data specialist. Um, and then we look for software that allows us to have maximum transparency into our buildings. Um, so we've been piloting and rolling out prescriptive data at a number of our assets Um, they use occupancy and other types of sensors uh, to actually control and optimize our automation systems Um, we uh, have a partnership with uh, venture capital firms like camber creek that help us source deals and find uh, products to, to try and see if we can match make with opportunities in our portfolio Um, And then, like I said, we use this pilot and deployment model. So we test something at a building, we see if it works, and then we try and figure out where we can deploy it more widely. I'm gonna talk just very briefly a case study um, that I love. So this is Levi's Plaza in San Francisco, and this is the first project in the Jamestown portfolio to make a commitment ahead of our 2050 net zero operational carbon target. Um, So it's committed to uh, being a net zero operational carbon campus by 2025. Um, and as we discussed, um, you know, it, decarbonization is just kind of one part of ESG. Um, so we're doing LEED certifications, you know, we're doing our annual energy star ratings. Um, and, you know, we're using, uh, we've got beehives on the roof that, that look really great, especially against the backdrop of, you know, the Golden Gate Bridge and whatnot. Um, but we're also um you know looking at things like waste management material management Um, and a lot of this is driven by our our tenants Um, the types of tenants that we want to see leasing space in our buildings Um, these requirements are are very important to them Um, so when it comes to decarbonization um, we use this priority this efficiency first priority waterfall this is from the department of energy um, so you know when it comes to efficiency we're doing uh, real-time energy management we did the retro commissioning program um, but this really started uh, for us uh, with due diligence so during the due diligence process um, we identified uh, an hvac replacement was needed um, and we did a lot of work very early on to say you know what would happen if instead of a like-for-like replacement we converted all of our central plant equipment from natural gas to all electric um, so we're in the process of doing that across four or five buildings um, and then as those roof replacements and hvac uh, upgrades are completed um, then we're uh, installing photovoltaics on at least one building hopefully more that's just really active um, and so you know this is a somewhat iterative we've been at this for a couple of years and you know each year through the annual budgeting cycle we try and uh, do more, um, and we're also kind of uh, staggering this work with um, lease turnover. Um, so this is just one example uh, that I wanted to go through, um, and uh, look forward to
2: some discussion. Absolutely, thank you so much, Becca. Um, so uh, you know, you 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 always make things with with the exception of your the solar issue look so easy. But can you just talk a little bit, like why is why is the data that supports all this hard?
4: Yeah, it is hard and it can be expensive, right? You know, our investors, stakeholders, tenants, it's like on one hand, everyone expects that we just have this information available. You know, I will say kind of back to the geographical diversity. um, It's more rare these days that we buy a building that doesn't have a benchmark established. Like, you know, I love when I buy, when we buy buildings from other institutional owners. Um, But yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's tough. And I think that's where tools like green leases come in or being really integrated, as you mentioned, with that due diligence checklist um, and the acquisitions team. Um, you know, it's, it's not going to kill a deal that you don't get your energy bills in time. Um, but you really I mean, it's true. You, you can't manage without measurement. Um, and so, you know, I would encourage everyone to to push for
2: that. And you mentioned investors. What what are you hearing from investors about everything? I mean, you have a lot of fantastic projects. Those were really fun case studies. I mean, you've obviously you know, been setting in Jamestown, you know, in a leadership position on sustainability. Are they talking to you? Or are they not? Are you doing this just, you know, by yourself? Like what's what's going on with investors right now?
4: That's what's great. You know, I love that there's multiple drivers that are kind of aligned to push this work, whether it be legislative or investor driven. Um, you know, investors used to ask questions like, are you doing any reporting? Do you measure any of this? And now they're like, OK, well, how did you do last quarter? You know, it's gotten much right. more granular. Um, and so I also think it's a little bit more dialogue based. You know, I think investors are are playing catch up in some degrees. And so, uh, you know, rather than just sending a questionnaire, you know, I'll often ask for a meeting so that we can explain our approach. A great example of this is when you buy a non-green building and try to make it more green over time. Um, we do that a lot. And, you know, I think it's important to have the opportunity to explain your approach just because things are a little bit more, um, I would say detailed when you're uh, doing a big renovation.
2: I love it. Investor's questions getting more detailed. Well, Becca, thanks so much. We'll come back to you during Um, Q&A. I have the pleasure of introducing uh, Joe Consolo. Um, Joe uh, is an industry principal from Yardi. Joe is an industry principal with more than 20 years of business leadership experience and has been instrumental in leading Yardi's growing energy business. He has expertise in business development, operational excellence, excellence, sustainability, and team leadership. So, Joe, I will turn it over to you.
5: Thank you, Sarah. There was a tongue twister for you. I always love throwing those into my intros. Well, hello, everybody. Um, Very nice to have you guys join the webinar today. Great discussion so far. And a lot of people know Yardi as a company that focuses on real estate software. We also focus on, you know, basically things from finance, accounting, marketing, leasing, investment management, co-working, those type of things. And also, a significant part of our business is around energy and sustainability and helping our clients achieve their goals in reducing their consumption and carbon emissions. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to walk you through a couple examples of where we've been helping clients. And so the first example is with Irvine Company with Irvine Company, we're working with them on their portfolio, and we've been doing this since about 2010 with these guys. And so they have a program called Energy Efficiency and Monitoring-Based Commissioning, and they have really internalized and built into their daily operations sustainable practices, which is great to see. What we have done is we have helped them with their portfolio, but here's an example of one of their buildings. This is the Nakatomi Tower in California. This one is best known for its role in the original movie Die Hard, and so it's kind of fun to work on projects like that. And so um, they have a total of 67 buildings with us. This is just one of them in 19 19 million square feet. And what we have done is we have put real-time metering into these buildings so they can see what their energy usage is on a real-time basis and compare to baselines, so that way they can track their progress and then also hold the gains. And then also work with installing other um, energy efficiency devices, one of them being fault detection diagnostics to monitor equipment, make sure it's optimized efficiency and operating um, the way you would expect it to. And if there's a problem, knowing it immediately. And then with HVAC systems automating those and really trying to drive um, energy efficiency while still maintaining tenant comfort, which is key. And so as a result, you can see the sustained annual savings. And key word, sustained—they're holding the gains of the improvements that they make. And um, you know, when you look at the impact across their portfolio, every single year they're having this impact. And so you know, just reducing. Um, a ton of kilowatt hours, 7 million tons of CO2, and um, and also a, a real dollar savings of $1.2 million annually. So there's there's a sustainable impact, but then there's also a financial impact. And um, so tremendous work by Irvine Company in, in adopting these techniques, and they have many projects going on. This is just one of the areas in which we're helping them. And so, another case study, another example is with LBA Realty. With LBA Realty, they have a smart buildings program. They have also focused heavily on uh, basically operationalizing sustainability and also sharing their benefits and outcomes with their investors, their employees and customers, and then also their local community because they want to make sure they're a um, a good partner in the community. Um, Similar product set that we installed in their buildings, smaller portfolio, but about the same same size of an impact. They have 11 buildings on this, about 6 million square feet, but um, about the same size impact because they started in a place that was not as far along as Irvine. And so they were behind them, but it quickly caught up and has had a dramatic impact in basically consumption, carbon, and dollar savings. So um, so by deploying these kind of tools and deploying methodologies and having a sustainability focus, it's having real results. And you heard these examples, from Sarah, Sam, and Becca, and here's two other examples of other companies that are doing this. And then here's an anonymized success story. And this goes to kind of a question <laughs> that Sarah asked about, why is the data so hard to get? And it's because it's not readily available and we're having to figure this out along the way. And, and over time, this data is going to be very easy for us to get, but the fact is today it's not. And so here's an example of where we have helped the client get their entire portfolio to 100% whole building data for energy, water, and waste. Um, that sounds easy to say. It's easy to say. sounds easy to do, but in practice for anybody doing this, you know, it's hard. And so, um, we took the tiered approach and different solution per property and per region because different properties and regions need different solutions, and we get as much as we can from utility companies, but that's not the silver bullet. You're not going to get everything you need there. Um, Then what we did is we focused heavily on metering, and um, this was also talked about earlier, um, where metering is being built into projects and new acquisitions. Um, Metering is one of the best ways to get the data, but then also it can be used over time, not just to get the data for reporting, but to have the data to make sure that you understand where the building is starting or what the baseline is to be able to track your improvements and also just as important to hold those gains over time. And then only when required where Green leases were in place. We went to the resident and tenants and got their uh, utility bills. But basically, by taking this approach, able to get the entire portfolio, of the whole building and, um, and just allowing them to have great baselines and then also set the benchmarks for the future. So there's three case studies and success stories um, that Yardies worked with our clients on. And, you know, our goal is to help our clients achieve their goals. Um, with our energy solutions, and um, here's three examples where we're doing it.
2: Fantastic. Joe, thank you so much. Um, Joe, these are great case studies. How are your clients, like how is Irvine Company, how is LBA, how are they choosing which buildings to start with? I mean, is it just, you know, um, is it tenants moving in and out? Is it just because the Nakatomi Towers are super famous? I mean, how is it, how are your clients um, prioritizing?
5: Yeah, so how are they prioritizing? So it's a good question. And so when when we're working with these clients on the prioritization, the first thing um, is which ones are the easiest to implement? It's not always the biggest impact because sometimes the biggest impact is gonna take you a long time to budget for or justify. And so when we go in, we say, what can we implement tomorrow? And um, sometimes just getting that low-hanging fruit implemented shows positive progress you start to get results that you don't have to wait for and then it's working on the more difficult solutions that may take a little bit more equipment or a little bit more upgrades and integration and those are going to come along after but a lot of times it's what's the biggest bang for the buck what's the low-hanging fruit and um and then when you start showing successes other people or more people start to see the benefits and get on board for more improvements and uh, and then it just gains momentum there
2: i love that um and joe um i don't want you to have to give away any of your secrets but uh you have seen millions and millions of square feet of buildings where do you think the the hidden opportunities are like where you know what are most buildings you know not doing that they should be doing and where's the biggest bank buck? is it fault detection is it controls is it where where are you seeing the biggest opportunities these days
5: yeah so i'm going to talk about something more basic okay. um the work life balance has changed. The way we use office buildings has changed. And I talked about yardi has co-working solutions as an example. And something that buildings are doing is they're scheduling people to come in now, right? So you schedule time. You might not have a dedicated office or desk. You're scheduling time. And so if you think about a one floor building, it might not be fully occupied every single day, but most buildings and floors are configured or spaces are configured so that it all turns on. And yeah, you might have light sensors that turn things off, but the HVAC is always on and all the systems are on. And so I think one of the biggest opportunities with the way in which we're working inside of buildings today is to do the right partitioning of the spaces and then also turn the amount of space on that you need. Maybe turn on 25% of it and the other 75 is off while it's not being scheduled. And then if you have enough people coming in that are gonna use 50%, turn another quarter of it on. And I think there's opportunities in the way that our buildings are configured in the way we're using spaces and the way we're using energy in those spaces.
2: Fantastic. And I think I have time for one more question to you, which is, um, what what do you see right now as the biggest barriers to net zero? You know, what's uh, what's keeping um, buildings, keeping companies from, from really um, making it happen?
5: So if we look at the industry, I would say that, and by the way, when we took the poll, most of the people on this call are advanced, Yeah. Right? moving forward. I would say that's still the minority of mm-hmm. our industry. There are a lot of people that are not out of the starting gate and have no interest in getting out of the starting gate because no one's driving them to do it. They're not required to do it. Right. And, and also I think another barrier is, is people that are being required to do it are also a little bit hesitant because of, the financial piece that they have to put on and because they're focused on kind of the short term payback of these things. Yeah. And they really need to take it a longer term view. Um, you guys talked about as you're acquiring properties. A couple of you talked about this earlier. You're acquiring properties and you're building this into your acquisition process. And there's this thing that's gaining momentum, which is basically um, obsolescence of a building due to sustainability or ESG or lack thereof and Mm -hmm. as investors are making purchases they're thinking about how much is it going to cost me to get the building up to my standards for my portfolio and if it's starting in a place that's really far behind that's more investment that you have to put into a building and it's impact negative impact negatively impacting asset values and so i think people need to take a longer term and a broader view and i think that's partly what's preventing this is really the financial piece
2: That's just fantastic wise words. Joe, thank you so much. We'll come back to you in Q&A. Now I have the pleasure of introducing our last speaker, who is um, Andrew Clindera from Carrier. So Andrew is the director of EHS for Carrier's North American Residential and Light Commercial Systems Group. Uh, Previously, Andrew held the position of global environmental and operations sustainability leader for Carrier. He was responsible for the development and implementation of carrier's strategy to achieve carbon neutrality, including the establishment of energy management and procurement programs for Scope One and Two greenhouse gas reductions. So, Andrew, thank you so much, and take it away.
6: Thanks, you, Darren, and uh, of course, thanks for having me. It, it's um, always great to participate on these types of calls. I think the whole, the biggest issue with uh, these, this carbon neutrality net zero journey is, is just benchmarking and learning from everybody, right? So. Again, really appreciate being here. So, as you said, you know, Carrier, um, a couple of years ago, we, we carved out some pretty aggressive ESG goals. Um, two of those being carbon focused which is deliver uh, carbon neutrality for our operations by 2030, which is our scope one and two metrics. And then within scope three, is avoiding a gigaton of uh, associated emissions from our customers and our products in use uh, at our customers' locations. We also have ways. Uh, we also have goals related to zero waste to landfill by 2030 and water neutrality. But of course, today, uh, we'll focus mostly on, on our journey related to carbon. Um, we have about 50 manufacturing facilities worldwide and about 1,000 rooftops that these goals span. So as, as most of the panelists have indicated here, the ability and, and the, the challenge to collect data has really been the core focus for for our organization um, and, and has really helped us, I think, in many cases, to actually drive product development as well and and I'm going to use a case study today to talk about how we're using our products in operations to achieve our sustainability goals you know really at our core carrier is a sustainability company um, our focus is to drive intelligent uh, connected and sustainable buildings and really to innovate products that help the world achieve these challenges so our world headquarters building in Palm Beach Gardens Florida um, which is where I'm, I'm located today um is about a 224,000 square foot building it is lead platinum and I, I agree with an earlier comment here around the certifications and i, I want to talk about how we try to make those certifications come to life here uh, a little bit at the building for our employees um, but really the world headquarters for us is where we test all of our products where we test all of our strategy you know everything really starts here and as as again as the panelists were saying how we start to digitalize and collect data that allows us to take action is really our most important aspect and one of the products that we've recently begun uh, To innovate develop and bring to market is a product called a bound Abound is a system that really connects all of the critical infrastructure of a facility so that you can see Real-time data that from what's coming in on your meters from the outside of the building and how that power is being distributed and, and utilized within your within your four walls and so what what abound has allowed us to do is, is really digitize again collect utility bill uh, data in a, in a consolidated way to integrate submeter data throughout our, our operations here at world headquarters to benchmark energy use across the entire building so as people come in as occupancy changes i think joe was kind of related to that how do you start turning off certain things in the building and, and how do you plan for that and become a little bit more strategic and instead of just telling our employees to, to turn the lights off, right? But how do we really set a strategy to actually decommission the building when things are not in use? And and I would say, lastly, what, what this, this digitization of, of, of CIB, our, our Center for Intelligent Buildings, is how we refer to it, has allowed us to do, is really prioritize specific investment needs into the building, right? Where are things not performing well? Where are products uh, maybe ready for an update, a renovation, even simple things like maintenance? Um, And and how do we track and ensure that we're taking care of those things? So some of the equipment, of course, um, that I'm referring to is is all of the building infrastructure. And and through our Bound platform, our web control building automation systems, we're able to see in real time um, how these these units are performing. And again, make real-time adjustments from our control center at CIB, which I think I'll show on, on the next slide here nope not yet not yet getting ahead of myself so i think the um excuse me one second here abound has allowed us in many cases and our, again our digital strategy within this building has allowed us to to really make some strong energy reductions over uh the last 12 18 24 months that we've been operating the, the building this way and it's, it's helped us obviously save costs subsequently save greenhouse gas emissions um, but I think what it's really done is it's helped us pilot how we're going to do this across our 50 manufacturing facilities across our thousand plus rooftops globally and so we are actively rolling out a very similar digital strategy um, using our products and services to achieve our carbon neutrality goals is really our core focus every day at carrier um, how do we not only um, you know achieve these goals but how do we do what we say right and show our customer base and show our employees um, that our products are truly a solution to their sustainability challenges and I think it's really core to, to how we we play offense in the market how we do business as an organization and it, it's something I think our entire employee base really really resonates with Let's see if I can jump in here so in our um, mechanical room uh, so to speak is kind of where everything starts our building is a heat pump um, cooled Building, so we have no active HVAC in the facility. Everything here is actually used on a gravity-fed heat pump, kind of using the, the beautiful Florida air, right, to put in heat. <laughs> many days to push hot air up as hot air rises. We push cold air down over our chillers, um, our chilled air systems, or chilled supply throughout the facility. All of this again tracked through our web control system and our and our abound platform throughout the building. Let's see if I can change the slide here. There we go. And here is a, a, a picture of our control room. And Sarah, you, you made a comment and I, I really appreciate it because I think uh, the world of ESG, uh, there's lots of certifications now, right? Everybody wants to have the newest certification. And, and many times, you know, your employees don't quite understand, great, I'm in a lead platinum building, but what does that really mean? And I think for us, what we, we attempt to do through our control room, which is visible to our employee base, but also in kiosks we have throughout the building, again, mostly enabled by our Abound platform, our building automation systems in, in, in this facility, It allows us to show our employees what's happening with the energy around them, what's happening with the actual environment of the building. Again, whether that's energy, indoor air quality, and ultimately what we're able to show our employees is the cost of operation. And it costs us roughly $700 a day uh, to power this facility. And that's something that you can see uh, in real time in in the center of our our atrium here at the Center for Intelligent Buildings. I think that that's something that, again, it really helps kind of categorize, right, for, for somebody. What are we doing when we say "lead platinum, and I think as our building being um, to see the unseen, so to speak, and i 'll wrap up here and go to questions you know it it really becomes how do we show again our products in operation we 're very proud of our products we 're very proud of what we do in terms of innovating, building efficiency, but how do you bring that home and really connect it so throughout our building the the theme of it being see the unseen as most of our products and most of the things we 're talking about today are in a closet or in the basement. Um, I think that all of these things allow us, again, to kind of create more of a call to action and and be more efficient in real time.
2: Andrew, thank you uh, so much. So um, I just was um, curious, can you tell us sort of like, all of the dashboarding and the employees are seeing it. What feedback are you getting from them? Like, how are your employees? You know, we in in the world of sustainability, we love dashboards, dashboards, dashboards everywhere. Um, right. But uh, I think it would be really great for the audience to hear sort of what what the feedback's been, what you're getting out of it, insights, interaction, what's going on.
6: You know, I, I think for for all of what has become the ESG call to action for the world, I, I think it's really important to um make it simple for people to understand you know when you say things like carbon neutrality and net zero and and they they're they're very broad big topics and they are very complex but to break it down very specifically for our workforce to say this is your energy consumption at your desk and on your floor and at at your level of the building i think it just personalizes it and i think it's allowed our employees to become more engaged into what we're doing even something as simple here as trash you see employees talking at the trash cans at Carrier, right? Of is this the right can for me to put this thing in? And I think, I think it's it's how you create small, simple ways for people to be engaged. And I think that's really what the dashboards have done for us.
2: Fantastic. And um, what trends are you seeing? Sort of what are your clients asking for that they weren't asking for last year, three years ago? Um, sort of what, what where are you seeing the space as we try to move our buildings towards? Net zero, carbon neutrality—all whatever term you're using for it. What what do you what do you think clients ask for?
6: Sure. So yeah, I think I, I'm I'm a little unique compared to the others. My clients are internal carrier employees and carrier facilities, right? So um, I service our business every day, and I, I think what's what where we started this journey a few years ago was um, how do we collect data? What what are these invoices? What sources do I need to do? Then it became, well, what projects reduce, right? How do we get support to really reduce and, and and how do we provide a real business case? And I think now we're at a point where we have the data, we're working on it, we still have some challenges. We have a good project pipeline, we're engaged in renewable energy, but now it's really saying, all right, help me make this happen, help me prove the business case, help me engage all the different stakeholders I need to execute these things. So I think, I think we're getting a little bit more mature um, But ultimately, I think, Sarah, what the teams are getting more focused on is reducing waste in our operations more than anything else. And and we're trying to get more more strategic in how we do that. For example, compressed air leak mitigation and and those types of activities. So I think it, it, it started very big, put solar panels on everything. I think now we're getting more refined to say, all right, well, these are the actions that make an impact. And I think that's what our teams asking for help on most of the most of the
3: time.
2: Fantastic. And um, I did notice uh, that you had a slide that um, talked about water, which I love. Uh, One of the things I get um, a little sad about in sustainability these days is I think we've gotten, everybody's gotten so carbon focused. I love that you're talking about, you know, your employees in recycling, and that we've we've a little bit stopped talking about water. Um, and uh, I was curious if you could just give us any insights um, from what you guys are doing to reduce water. Sort of, what's the what's the cutting edge of water reduction right now for carriers?
6: Great question. I think over the last couple of years, we've seen a lot of locations around the world have significant water scarcity issues, um, whether that's in Mexico, in India, in parts of throughout Asia, uh, even in, in Europe in some cases. And so. I think that that topic is going to emerge as the next big, I think if it's greenhouse gas today, I, I do think it's water tomorrow. Um, and ultimately what we're trying to do is look at things like our cooling tower, you know, specifically for our products in operation. We make chillers that u- utilize a cooling tower, which uses, uses quite a bit of water. So how do we start to convert those to air cooled? And we make those products as well. So again, creating that business case to start to say, if it's if it's from fossil fuel to electrification, I think it's a very similar strategy on the waterfront for how you start to move things into um, different sources of cooling. In most cases, and, and I would probably say this: you know, one of the biggest challenges we have on water is um, some of it's sanitary, right? So at a certain point, you only get, you can only. Manage that aspect of it so much, but it's also then how do you kind of slowly phase water usage out of your operations without creating a business impact? So, we have a huge focus globally on our water consumption, um, moving things from non groundwater sources to city usage so that we can kind of prove that and, and ensure that I should say that we're putting, we're taking water and putting it back in the same place. So, I think it's an emerging topic, Sarah. I think it's something that uh, we're focused on, but I'd love to see the, the rest of the world kind of come along with that journey as well.
2: Absolutely. Well, Andrew, thank you so much. Uh, Andrew, why don't you go stay on camera, and then I'm going to invite all of our panelists um, who have their uh, camera stuff working uh, to get um, back on camera. I know Sam is um, here to uh, also available to answer questions. In fact, Sam, I'm actually going to start with you. And by the way, audience, please feel free to put questions in the chat. i happy to get your questions answered. Otherwise, I'm just going to dive right in. Um, so Sam, um, we uh, one of the things I really liked about your presentation is this concept of moving away from just thinking about operational carbon, so the fuels, you know our natural gas, our electricity into scope three. What do you think we need to do you know within the real realcom community um, to take the really advanced, I mean, as you guys heard, everybody on the slide is very uh, on this panel is very, very advanced in terms of um, operational emissions and move that thinking to scope three. How, how do you think that transition needs to happen?
3: And I think there you're focusing, talking about embodied carbon as well. I think the broader impact. Yeah, embodied carbon tenant, all that good stuff. Yeah, I think it's... um, it's recognising um and starting to chart the whole um carbon footprint and looking at the whole impact of an organization. So I think it's um collaborating with different partners. Um for us at Colliers, we're looking at our um our own operations but then expanding out into how we interact with our clients and that's that's our scope three and we're we're part of our client scope three. So I think it's it's collaborating, it's it's charting all of the different aspects of of the impacts. Um, I think you know, we also um organisations such as the World Green Building Council, I think they've got some great tools and resources that we're also finding very helpful. The UN's development uh, sustainable development goals again gives a very broad holistic view. And I think those measures and frameworks are helping us look at the whole, you know, taking a more holistic, holistic view. But I think for me, it's interesting to listen to Andrew about water. I think um I think when we look at benchmarks, water usage, embodied carbon and um operational carbon uh, or operational energy that that really does give us that broad view and i think that's how we're doing it so still trying to s- sort of keep it fairly simple but covering that whole range um, as well to make sure we, we really do look at the whole impact
2: so a lot more supply chain collaboration is really what it's going to yep. take this. absolutely yeah um, and becca i wanted to ask you about money um, and i'm not talking about just operational savings from um you know all the great work you do but um how Sort of, how is this getting funded at Jamestown? How are you? How are you making the business case? Are we talking green bonds? Are we talking sustainability-linked loans? Are we, you know, how? How? How does this work for you? Is there a dedicated budget? Like, what's going on in terms of um, making all the great work we're talking about happen?
4: Yeah, it's a great question. Um, You know, I'll start with the reporting because that's a little more simple. You know, a lot of the reporting is allocated to the fund um, that requires the reporting. Um, You know, I try to ask for the data once and then do like 10 different things with it. So sometimes that makes it a little complicated um but certainly everything at the building level is really funded through those property budgets um and i know we've joked about this a lot right like whenever anybody uh whenever i get an energy project challenged i'm like well wait a second you know you spent $150,000 on christmas lights you know what was your payback on that you know you, you don't have twenty thousand dollars for this energy project um but you know that said um uh, what i like about a lot of this work is that there there is a real kind of value proposition um, and so you know we use our annual budgeting cycle um, to make refinements, but a lot of our approach really starts with that due diligence. So, you know, we use an ESG checklist. um and because we've done so many pilots, we've got some pretty good numbers from our own portfolio. Um, so that's been working out really well. But again, you know, I think um like one of the things we're really focused on right now is you know a lot of that financial analysis happens up front to kind of get a project funded. Um, we're actually kind of taking a, a moment to kind of go back and kind of recap some of our projects for like deeper internal case studies, very nuanced things, right? Like in a building that might have a mix of lease types, you know, what do you pass through as CAM charges and how are those tenants being made whole? And then what, how do you split the the net savings? Um, and that looks different at every single one of our properties. And I think the kind of the nice forcing function there is that these aren't Becca's projects, right? It's not my team's right. projects. These are really the building projects, and I think it's um, helping to drive an engagement that really um, increases
2: the success across the board. Thank you. I love that. Um, and um, Joe, so we talked a lot about you have great case studies talking about successes you've had, but but what what's next? Like, what are you what are you cooking up um, at Yardie? What are you excited to be? You know, what do you think you'll be implementing the most over the next year, or two years? You know, what is already excited about? Joe,
5: you're on, I can't hear you. Yeah, that would be the mute button. Okay. Yeah, so what I would say is um, a lot of our clients today um, are focused on kind of the basics, which is gathering data and reporting that data. Um, And then people focus on how do I reduce it and improve it. So today our focus is heavily on gathering data and reporting and our focus in the future is more on the reduction side. And like the case studies, I sh- the first two case studies I shared, it's going to be more focused in that area as more clients get more sophisticated and, and figure out the whole reporting piece.
2: Fantastic. Um, mm-hmm. And Andrew, um, can you uh, talk a little bit about um, how, uh, sort of, just the nuances of carriers' carbon neutrality goals? You know, what exactly? what exactly is that goal what's the timeline you know what are the milestones you know what's the you know what's what's your pathway
6: sure um nice question it's i I think the nuances of it maybe maybe a couple of categories for us right it's first is you know products in operation our products in operation and driving our most efficient technology that we make into all the operations that we we run every day i think that's that's truly core secondly uh, is energy intervention is the way I like to refer to it. It's, it's how we start to change the sources of energy our facilities consume power from, whether that's producing more energy on site. We have about 20 or 30 locations right now going through active RFPs for onsite solar around the globe, or how we participate in the off-site energy grid, right? And support um, the grid to become a cleaner place. And, and ultimately carrier obviously benefits from that. But um, the goal being that I think large companies like ours if we're not participating in the development of a, of a cleaner grid then i don't think that we're answering the call to action that is the csg push um in the world today so i'd say those are probably the two key areas for us right now um, and then maybe the third just generally speaking obviously products kind of relate but like like joe said we're, we're really moving into getting better at um, production planning and and how we're going to find financials as becca was referring to it's not always so easy but find financing to go and do these activities in our operations to not impact operating budgets, to find ways to do things off balance sheet or to do things in a way that that allows us to continue to move forward, that prioritizes these actions, um, but maybe doesn't get them bogged down in the fact that, hey, the return on this is actually five years, right? It's a five-year return investment versus our goal of two or one. Um, so how do we start to offset it and, and make these projects really come to life? So I, I would say those are the biggest nuances for us right now. Um, and, and fortunately, we have a leadership team at Carrier that's really engaged uh, to, to make these things happen. So the funding has been easier for us. As I said, we're now a little bit better positioned in our project pipeline to go after the reduction plans.
2: Fantastic. Um, so you do have an audience question. Um, so uh, the question is plug loads and MELs. I don't even know what, what MEL stands for, and I'm pretty good at my sustainability acronym. So if somebody else can jump uh, me, I'm really, Sarah. So our, our 40% of, of building energy consumption, is anyone deploying um, Internet of Things systems beyond the meter to capture and analyze uh, granular real-time electricity um, demand, at point of demand, like at the socket level? If not, why not? Cost, low priority, inserting about the value or um, impact. I, um, With our Podium Property Insights, we are at the zone level, so we're not at the socket level. I don't know if any, um, uh, which is, um, which is actually, I think, much more granular than most buildings can uh, can do. Um, uh, does anybody is anybody going down to the socket?
5: I have not seen anybody go down to the socket level yeah. yet. Uh, zone level. What are what,
2: what are folks doing on plug load? I well,
5: I, yeah, go ahead.
6: Yeah. I, so I, I think for us, maybe not to the to the electrical socket in the office here, but certainly you know to large busheads in our operations and our manufacturing facilities um, for large production equipment in particular. We are working towards submetering data in all of our locations, uh, at least in our top, I'll say 25 sites, our largest locations. Um, the vehicle being our building automation systems, web control, and allowing us to cl- connect submeters to web control and ultimately utilizing a bound um, to, to display that data and make it more actionable. So we're not there yet, um, but we do have a number of facilities right now that have very robust submetering in place. And I, I think it's helping us. Deal with maintenance activities um, in, in a big way and kind of make sure things are running properly, but also, uh, as I said in my little presentation there, like how, how do we plan for the future? how do we get better projects right into the pipeline and I think that our 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 strategy to submeter is pretty robust right now future
5: yeah. I would support what you said it's focused on the large pieces of equipment the large the things that draw large enough and I haven't seen people really focus on the small things like whats. No. Yeah, we it could be large.
2: I definitely uh did a, a plug load pilot um uh before I got to Lendlease. And um what I have found, and by the way, M E L sounds for miscellaneous energy load, so that's our fun fact today. Um where uh people do not like it when you're and, Lend, and the reason you can't do it at Lendlease is we're all on free address systems, nobody has an assigned desk and everybody just brings their laptops in, so this wouldn't apply, but um for non-personal equipment, um, yes, this is possible. So for printers are a great example of something you don't need all to be on all the time that don't have their own sort of sleep functions. Um, uh, but there's other equipment that kind of just needs to be running, you know, people don't like it if the coffee maker doesn't make the coffee in the morning or you know, you can't actually turn off a refrigerator at night. So um, finding the applications that don't feel like an invasion of privacy and then also, um, you know, aren't gonna disrupt, you know, the normal running of an office. And also it's hard for a landlord to get into tenant space. I mean, yes, we can do it in our own offices, but the idea of, you know, going to our tenants and saying, sure, can we go, you know, monitor all of your printers um, gets a little gets a little more difficult. So it's, it's a pretty personal thing. I'm glad
4: you mentioned that, Sarah. And I know um, there's always the talk of this like split incentive, right? Like the landlord to some extent is limited in terms of what we can do. And, you know, why would we get involved with the tenant operation? you know, I'm always reminding uh my colleagues that we're responsible for the whole building emissions, right? We're responsible for all of this stuff, whether or not it's in our operational control. And yeah, we can certainly label it. But, you know, I think what I'm kind of seeing is more engagement between landlords and tenants. And so, you know, for example, we've looked at a couple of pilots, we're hoping to maybe pilot something in one of our offices, just to see kind of like how this works. Uh, Like I might even, you know, put myself uh, let myself go first and uh, you know see how it actually works in my own office. Um, but you know I think this is where it's like you know we can be a value add to our tenants by saying you know here's kind of a menu of things that we can support you in doing, um, but less like prescriptive like we as a landlord are demanding that you do this. Um, but you know when we look at buildings like in markets like D.C., uh, New York, Boston that might be facing potential fines. Um, I expect that there's going to be more engagement with tenants on this sort of thing, um, but you're absolutely right. It's, it really comes down to change management and personal preference. And, um, you know, we want to make friends and influence people to get stuff done, not, you know, make them mad because their coffee maker didn't come on in time. <laughs>
2: absolutely. Um, hey, uh, so a number, so we've talked a lot about offices, but um. Sam, can I uh, start with you? How does, how does what we're talking about work differently say in multifamily or other asset types that that Collier is working, Collier's is working in?
3: Yeah, I think, um, you know, the case study that I was talking to is a collaboration with Electrolux. So they have a mixed asset class, they have offices and they have industrial um, manufacturing and logistics. So um, same principles in terms of um, data um, and looking at, you know, benchmarks which are backed by science. you know, to achieve the net zero objectives or water objectives. Um, but it's recognizing that there are um, some some of the logical sequencing or the um, the measures, the remedial measures are different. So for instance, with industrial asset classes, often the ability to have on site renewables is, is greater than with office buildings, uh, depending on the, the location, but certainly across Europe for industrial assets, it, it, it's gonna, um, it's more likely than with, you know, Um, city centre office buildings so we see that the remedies and the um, you know the um, decarbonising works have a different scope um, and different order but it's still going through I think um, Becca had it on her list you know starting with um, energy efficiency looking at renewables electrifying um, but it's just that the the sort of the balance between them is different certainly we see Mm -hmm. that between offices and um, and industrial buildings I think industrial buildings the, the classification or the certificates are a different level of maturity um but seeing growing importance and also with industrial asset classes the um the importance of the um the machinery for instance, if it's a manufacturing plant obviously is huge so it's again that balance where the real estate is really just a wrapper for the um industrial manufacturing plant so that's a really interesting dynamic and and makes it super important in terms of looking at the the whole carbon footprint it's looking you know the real estate teams have to work alongside the um industrial engineering teams as well.
5: I can, I can comment. A comment on oh. the residential side and multifamily, especially. Um, what I see is they have bigger challenges when it comes to getting data from their buildings because you think about more like an industrial space, you might have one tenant, you might have a couple tenants. Well, in a residential property, you could have a thousand residents. Yeah. And so you have a thousand different electric meters that you don't have visibility to. And so to try to get that information out of those, let's say a garden style property. Now you have multiple buildings with multiple residents per building. It gets complex really fast on how to get that data possible. We've done it and we've worked with clients and I've seen other clients do it. Um, it just gets more challenging because of the scale of the number of meters and residents and off
2: yeah, and my stabilized portfolio is entirely multifamily and I feel the pain. Um so uh this question I think is it's gonna be a sort of a fun lightning round question, which is uh predicting the next big thing um for uh real estate and uh, on the path to carbon neutrality. So um uh is it grid uh this is an audience question so is it grid efficient interactive buildings is it whole building electrification is it resilience focus battery system circular economy scope three tracking so we're just going to go uh around the horn on this one so andrew you're first on my screen what do you feel like is the next big thing
6: it's a tough question i think um i think on the industrial side it's it's probably an organization's ability to participate in 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 developing the power grids and cleaning the grids i think that's that's where you see a lot of companies going i think that's that's where you have to be focused in order to really be hitting the mark here
2: yeah uh becca you're next on my screen
4: i mean it's really all of the above all the time um, i'm going to go with electrification we're starting to see that legislation i tell people you can run but you can't hide uh really excited <laughs> about uh all electric kitchens
2: uh, Joe,
5: what do you think Um, I was going to say it is on-site generation, storage, and kind of just having those microgrids. Yep.
3: And Sam? I think for me, the rising importance of embodied carbon, so that legacy carbon, as we're getting better with Im- improving energy efficiency, um, the, the challenge of embodied carbon will become um, front and center.
2: Yeah. I agree. I and I would I would have picked actually that as well, which is um, companies um, starting to inventory and then manage their scope three emissions. Is yes, like Becca said, it's sort of all of the above, but um, that's certainly our big focus on land is inventorying our scope three emissions and seeing what happens. Um, so, also from the audience, speaking of renewable energy sources how prepared are your buildings and portfolios uh, to activating demand-side response programs and DERs? Becca, you had mentioned demand response. Um, I have been down the battle of demand response myself. Um, how, you know, how how ready is your portfolio? And I would love to hear from, you know, everybody in terms of how, how ready are we to really um, interact with the grid?
4: So many acronyms and programs like across different geographies. I feel like you could get like a degree in demand response lingo. Um, We've been doing it for a while and, you know, it was scary at first. It was like, oh, my gosh, what are we going to have to do? Are the tenants going to care? Is it going to make a big impact? Um, We've done it different ways, direct with the utility, we've done it through third parties. Um, It's a great way to make a little money and contribute to the grid when we can. Um, And like I said, uh, when speaking about uh, one of our multifamily buildings in New York, it's been great to get the individual units involved. Um, But then again, that's a specific offering from that utility. So my multifamily building in DC doesn't have the same opportunity currently. Um, So yeah, we we like to do it. Um, Interestingly, I've found that it's not as popular in Europe. It could just be kind of where our portfolio is in Europe. Um, but I was surprised when I, when asking them about it recently. They were like, yeah, it's not really a thing. So, um, yeah, I, I we've not had any issues and encourage all of our buildings to participate.
2: Sam, what are you seeing in terms of sort of grid interactivity and demand side of management?
3: Yeah, I think if I'm interpreting that correctly, well, um, certainly if we're um, where we work with clients who have um, energy generation on site they will be looking at returning it to the grid so I think um, and I, you know in fact um, probably one of the most forward-thinking buildings we've been involved in a, a campus in the Nordics um, and they're they're actually generating more electricity than they need and it's going back into the grid so it's a huge um, you know very proud of that scheme in terms of the um power and it's also a district heating system. So I think it depends on the infrastructure where where you are. I think where, in countries and locations where there's district heating, there's also other opportunities, um, you know, increased opportunities to to send energy back to the grid.
2: And Joe, uh, what are you seeing? I know I know because I've used it uh, in my previous my portfolio, um, has um uh you know demand response uh product Harry what do you what's sort of the current state of play with demand response you're seeing?
5: Yeah so um so we have seen our clients use it and but it's so localized today. It's not very pervasive. It's not very, you know, widespread. So what I would say is, is there's people that are using it, but it's a very small percentage of us that use it. So I would say it's growing in popularity where you can use it, but outside of there, it doesn't seem to be expanding. At least I'm not seeing it expand. It may be yeah. somebody else's.
2: Um, we this next audience question, I think maybe I'll start with Andrew or anybody who can jump in. What about low voltage? Are we working on this? What are we doing in this space? Can anybody explain it to um, the audience?
6: Well, I think low voltage power for us um, kind of changing how certain things – you know, LED lighting would be a good example, right, of voltage reduction into your operations. Although it's a small – usually a small – um, portion of, of your energy usage, depending on where you are, right? I think that's something that we've been pretty focused on. But but even you know back to the demand response thing, I think that's a, a, a very difficult piece to participate in in certain cases um, because especially for us the manufacturing business, it, it becomes very difficult to participate in demand response, turn the business off partially at certain points of the day. We're a seven day a week uh, kind of kind of company. And then on the low voltage side, it's similar. Our challenges are very similar with that, where we need quite a bit of power day-to-day to to, to, to run the operation. So I think that's been a challenge for us, although I do know in our project pipelines we've been looking at some voltage applications, power factor changes across our offices in North America.
2: And Andrew, I have to ask you, since we've been talking both about embodied carbon and about um, all the things Carrier is doing, Do you, are you seeing anybody starting to ask about the embodied carbon of carrier systems yet? I mean, this is, I think where I'm seeing trends a little bit in Europe, you know, we um, who do, and Sam, if you're seeing this, let me know, but we essentially are not accounting for the embodied carbon of MEP systems, right? We just pretend those don't exist. But I've been told that that's like maybe even a third of a building's um, carbon is in the MEP systems themselves. Sam or Andrew, are are you seeing
3: the measurement of this beginning?
6: Sam, you want to start?
3: Yeah, I'll, I'll kick off. Um, you know, I mentioned a, one of our clients where it's it's integrated within the, um, the cost report of a new build project. I think mm-hmm. that's already happening. I think what we're seeing is now that it's starting to also come into fit out and refurbishment. I've got another client who, you know, they've got a, a model which creates... Um, uh, budgets for um just office fit outs and office refurbishments and actually we've helped them um provide embodied carbon for the key elements so now as well as providing this model a cost model embodied carbon model as well so it's definitely started to move from the new build and development into refurb and fit out and, and driving decisions as well um, i mentioned earlier about sort of also driving um government um, regulations and planning um, code across Europe in terms of, you know, quite rightly making it very difficult to apply for buildings to be demolished and looking at retaining frames. For instance, that's quite a common solution we're seeing, um, and 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 working with these existing elements. Fantastic. It, it, and
2: Andrew, what about you? are you are you? Are you starting to find environmental? You know, in the
6: last couple mm-hmm. of years, we have done life cycle assessments across mm-hmm. a huge majority of our product line to understand the full life cycle of, of an HVAC system or a chiller um, and and what the end of life of it looks like, right? And, and how we kind of prepare, um, as Sam said, for some of the regulations that are definitely coming in this space. I think Europe is, is leading here, of course. Um, but that is something that that I, I'd say we're, we're beginning to get our arms wrapped around and, and really leveraging our service business um, to start to provide our customers a different outlet for end of life products and at least ensuring that they are recycled and reused to the best of their abilities. Um, and I would also add, right, for us that you know 40% of a building um, electricity, well, we'll say 40% of the world's GHG is 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 produced from a building. About 20% of that we estimate is an air conditioner in use, right? So we're pretty in tune with um, the impact our products have on on the world and on this discussion. Um, and that is, you know, of course, why our our goal of reducing a, a gigaton of emissions from our customers is so important to us. Um, and that's a full life cycle goal, right? Of saying we need to find ways to sell more efficient equipment, more sustainable equipment, and ultimately then find a way to deal with it at its end of life.
2: Got it. Um, and Joe, this might be our last question, but it's for you, which is um, what are the barriers? It's DSR, which I believe is demand side response. response? Yeah. I think it is DSM demand side management, but R, for R is response.
5: Yeah. So, what are the barriers? So, number one, it's having the technology in your building and the communication network also, because you might have the equipment in place that can deal with it, but it's gotta be communicated with the grid that's giving you these signals. And then if you have tenants, they have to be connected in too, because even if you can control some systems in the building, you have all these tenants, you need them to also take action. Otherwise the impact is pretty small. So the barriers first is communication, then integration of systems, and then engagement
2: mothers got it and we do have time We're going to do one lightning round which is um takeaway. so everybody i'm going to ask you 30 seconds or less you know what is the main takeaway you would like the audience um to take away from our our session today um you know what 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 is the action item what is the to do so say i'm going to start with you
3: Um, I think the collaboration between landlords and tenants, because I predominantly work with occupiers um, and Becky spoke to that as well. So I think, um, you know, consider green lease clauses, um, open up and uh, and increase the access to data flows between landlords and and tenants, because that's the only way we're going to decarbonise our real estate. Fantastic. Becca?
4: Similarly, I would say collaboration, but especially internally, Um, you know, I think ESG and decarbonization should be everyone's job, right? Everyone from the accountants uh, to the development managers to the property managers. So, um, you know, I would really uh, maximize your team by including everyone that you can.
2: Absolutely. And Joe,
5: Um, I would say three things. Number one, um, make sure that whatever is measured. Improves. You have that basic concept, because if you're measuring these things, you're going to drive improvement. Make sure you're aligning those through your operations and just building it into what you do and engagement of new teams.
2: Fantastic. And Andrew? I,
6: you know, I think it's um, it's educate. You know, Becca, to your point, this is everyone's job, I think. Uh, but it is important to recognize it's, it is a skill set and, and you have to educate your stakeholders and make things tangible for them. And, and with education would come a multi-year plan. I think that's something a lot of companies are running, running, running to, to execute these targets. But sustainability means many things. I think um, a multi-year plan is more sustainable and it allows you to prioritize, find the funding, find the support. So look out more than a couple years and try to try to get to that level of visibility.
2: Fantastic. And I'm going to say, tackle those scope three emissions. We're really good at scope one and two. Let's apply that thinking to the biggest part of our emissions. And I will turn that's it back to important. Thanks so much for having me and the rest of us.
0: All right. Thanks again to all the panelists. You guys did great. Sarah, thanks again for moderating. You balanced it perfectly. Uh, th- Sam, especially coming in from London, you're you know you're approaching your your later evening, so that was great. Uh, really do appreciate all of the support that we have. Just lots of information to process here. And thank you again to the live audience, uh, especially Catherine. And Catherine said. Hey, th- thank you, panel, for being responsive to your question, so I'll pass that along. Uh, Andrew, I'll, uh, I- I'll I'll push back a little bit on low voltage. I think uh, that's probably going to uh, be a, a, a pretty big area where buildings are going to be, begin to be converted. And I would encourage people, uh, check that out. There's going to be some special uh, panel discussions and exploration at REALCOM, so a little bit more on that in just a second. So. Uh, Whether you've joined us live or you're watching this as a recording, thank you for tuning in and be sure to register for our next webinar series. It's also a fantastic opportunity. Automate everything to combat a looming downturn, driving measurable business values on April the 13th. And, uh, I think oh good i was just i was wondering too marguerite uh, westbrook just joined that one so uh, we're happy to have her and then uh followed up by case studies on april the 27th we're trying to do these webinars where we give the fundamentals first and then we focus in on some case studies so how people d- did that so you'll see that pattern throughout the year on many of these webinars so again thank you all so much and make your plans right now for realcom and ibcon 23 you'll be able to connect with many other people that you saw here on this webinar. They'll be there in person. You can develop relationships, expand your network connections. It will be in Las Vegas at Caesars Palace mid-June. You can see the dates there. There's some pre-conference stuff that you might be interested in, a lot of good value there. Uh, I've also been informed that the uh, block of hotel rooms is nearly sold out, probably as fast as it's ever gone. So um, if you're thinking about it or you're you know you're checking your travel budgets, be sure to uh, be sure to lock in your travel arrangements and your your stay as quickly as possible. So again, thanks to the uh, thanks to all our great sponsors, our panel, uh, all of the audience members, and to, to the entire RealCon team. You guys do such a great job at this, and makes uh, this hosting so much simpler. So, well, that's it for us. Be safe, and we will see you next time. Thanks again.